We're thinking about abundant living and what does that look like. And today we're going to look at a little passage in the book of Philippians. So I'd like to invite you to follow along with me in Philippians chapter 4. So now we're getting towards the little books that are toward the back of the Bible, letters that Paul wrote, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get in that neighborhood, you should be able to find Philippians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, you're free to look it up on your phone or your uh, iPad, whatever you've got to follow along. Philippians chapter 4. Paul, in the second half of all of his letters, gives um, descriptions about what abundant living looks like. And so we could have picked almost any letter that he wrote, but I really like Philippians, so we selected that for today. Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at the last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. This is God's Word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. We've been saying throughout this series, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Do you know how many days you have to spend in a lifetime? Of course we don't, but maybe we could take a stab at it. I have 7,300 pennies in this jar. Somebody was already trying to guess, and and then somebody was going to put some extra pennies in here and mess me up. (laughs) That's 20 years' worth of days. 7,300 days. How do you spend your days is how you spend your life. How many of these columns do you get? If this is a 20-year column, you get two of them, 40 years, three, three and a half, four, four and a half, maybe. I am well into my third column of pennies, how many days do I have left to spend? And of course, the question we're really interested in is, how many of those days do we spend abundantly? Because we can spend our days and then regret it, or we can spend them in abundant living. I took a road trip this past week to Michigan 
and it's a trip I've taken many, many times. And whenever I take this trip, I always plan for there to be some kind of delay on uh, one side or other of the Illinois-Indiana border. I always expect there's going to be some kind of traffic or construction or accident or something like that. And if I can get through there without a slowdown, then I figure that I have been blessed. This past Sunday night when we drove through there, we were not blessed. Uh, the, the, we actually got a notification about this now on Mary's new smartphone. It said that there was a traffic incident ahead and that we should be alert to slowdowns. And we spent about 50 minutes to go six miles, which is why I love living in Cedar Rapids and not living around there. So we were crawling along this highway at about the same speed that I jog for perspective. And so you get a whole different um, kind of viewpoint when you're traveling that slow along the highway. And at one point, we passed this beautiful little creek that was running right alongside the highway, and all the trees were just starting to kind of burst out in, in buds, and their leaves were just a... It was, it was actually stunning. It was like a postcard. Now, I have driven past that spot in the highway many, many times, and I've never noticed it before. Why didn't I notice it before? Yeah, I'm usually going 75 or 80 when I go by there. Just shoot past that thing. You never notice it. Now I'm crawling by this thing, and I'm like, wow, this is beautiful. Rushing down the highway of life, rushing through our days, spending our days in a frenzy, in frantic pace, you miss a lot. And what I'm going to suggest today is this, that if we spend our days in a frantic frenzy, we have a much more difficult time seeing grace, seeing abundance, the abundance that God wants to give us. The consequence of living this way is fear. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have fear when we should have de- delight, or we could at least have delight. We have exhaustion when we could have rest. We experience the crushing demands that come from the law when we could be experiencing forgiveness. We have dissatisfaction when we could be experiencing contentment. We have scarcity when we could be living in abundance. This is all part of spending our days in a rush, in a hurry. You'll be happy to know that I want to offer a solution to this today. And my solution is this. More singing. So Friday afternoon, I had an appointment with somebody, and I got ushered into their office space, and then it was Friday afternoon, and it was, you know, how nice it was. So, like, nobody was in the office, and the receptionist finally came out and told them who I was there to see, and they had me sit in a chair and wait while she went down the hall to get this person. And uh, a few seconds later, I hear singing, and there's this woman coming down the hallway, and she's just completely, like, having a great day, and she's singing a song, and I almost expect her to break into whistling because whistling is like the best sound of happiness ever. But she didn't. She comes singing. And then she comes around the corner and she sees me and she's like horrified. I didn't think anybody was here. And then she apologized for singing. And I said to her, no, this is great. I'm glad that you're singing because this is the kind of day that we should sing in, right? When you have a great day, singing can make any day greater, right? So then Friday night, um, Mary took me to Beauty and the Beast. How many of you have seen the new Beauty and the Beast? Ah, it's my new favorite movie. It's such a great movie. And it got me thinking about what they do in musicals. 
In musical, when you're having a bad time, what do you do? You sing, yes, yeah, so you break into song. So if you know the story, you know Belle gets taken to the beast's castle and she's held prisoner, and it's, it couldn't get more gloomy than that. And finally she sneaks downstairs into the dining room and all the dishes start singing, Be Our Guest. And whatever gloom that was being experienced, it's gone because there's a song about dinner. What a great song. Actually, one of my all-time favorite songs is in this movie, the song about Gaston. You remember the character Gaston? And one of his talents is expectorating. Do you know what that is? It's a song about spitting. How great is that? So if you can have a song about spitting, this makes life good. My solution to speeding through life is to sing more. Singing slows us down. It helps us experience grace, recognize grace, recognize abundance, to be grateful. We miss grace when we spend our days too quickly. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. You know that song? It's about spending your days too fast. I thought we should review some definitions that we've been using, and I'm not going to sing them to you. Just give them straight up. Scarcity is this mindset that says there's not enough, that we're, that we're missing out. And it creates this fear that starts to drive us to have to amass more and more. Because I'm afraid if I don't have enough and I'm missing out, I've got to do something to add more and more. But the problem with the scarcity mindset is no matter how much more I add, there's never enough. This is in comparison to abundance, which is a mindset of I have plenty. Not just enough, but more than enough. And the passage we looked at actually uses the phrase superabundance. We have the superabundance in Christ. And the consequence of this is deep gratitude and contentment and delight. Because if you've got more than enough, well, then that creates delight. We have enough to enjoy and enough to share with others. That's what comes with that. There's a couple of terms related to this that we looked at last week. The first one's law. Law is another scarcity concept because the concept that comes with the law is you can never be good enough. I can never measure up. I can never do enough good works. I can never do enough good deeds. The law tells us what we should do, and there's quite an extensive list summarized by love God with all your heart and love your neighbor exactly the same way you love yourself. Can't do it. The law says you can't be good enough. And even though the law points out how we're supposed to live, the law itself is powerless to give us anything to, to do it. It doesn't help the situation at all. We know that we're not good enough, but we can't do anything about it. This is in contrast to grace, which has to do with more than enough love. A love that comes to us even when we are unloved, even when we're unlovable. Grace is love and forgiveness that's unrelated to our behavior. It's unrelated to us or anything we do. You don't have to measure up to receive grace. Grace is just given to you. Love and forgiveness are given to the undeserving based on the character of the giver, not based on the character of the receiver. 
So when we receive grace, we receive it even though we are not worthy of it. Philippians is a letter that was written to help us live not by the law and not with a mindset of scarcity, but with a mindset of abundance to live with grace. In the opening paragraph of the letter, which we didn't read, uh, we're kind of told why Paul wrote this. So if you want to flip back to chapter 1, verse 3, Paul starts the letter by saying, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul wrote this little letter, because he wanted these people in Philippi to recognize that when God starts a good work, nothing can stop him from completing it. The good work that he started in me, the good work that he started in each of you, one day that will be completed. And not because of anything that we do. It'll be completed because of God's grace, because of God's love for the unlovable, because of God's desire to bring about good things. This is why Paul wrote this letter. He wants us to remember that God's good work will be accomplished one day. It will be finished and completed one day. Paul wanted everyone to know this because this changes everything. And he also sets this up in the first chapter, verse 27. So because of this picture of God's grace, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as the one for the faith of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. This grace impacts our conduct. It changes how we live. It shapes our behavior. Everyday grace shapes everyday conduct. That's the way Paul sets up this letter. And he first gives us a picture of this this amazing grace of a God who desires to complete every good work. And because of that, it's going to shape us. It's going to shape how we live day by day. Paul connects everyday conduct with the gospel and our behavior, our everyday living, and says it should result in things like this. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. The gospel of God's grace results in rejoicing every day. This is what Paul says. Now, these passages weren't written directly for mothers. They weren't written directly for families or for marriages. But as we've been saying from the beginning, if abundant life doesn't apply to like every day, then what good is it, right? It should like get down to the nitty-gritty. So I wanted to try to apply these things today specifically for mothers in, in, our, in our homes, in our marriages, things like that. So... Do you think these words have anything to do with your family? Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Do they have anything to do with your marriage? Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Does it have anything to do with your parenting? Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. How do these words fit into your home? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When the people in your home pop their eyes open in the morning, they start singing. Oh, happy day. There's prayers of thanksgiving, gentleness, contentment, peace. Is that the atmosphere in your home? If you're a married person, do these words describe your marriage? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me and seen to me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. When you look across the table at your spouse, you think noble, true, pure, admirable thoughts. I have a theory. I haven't really tried this out on Mary yet, but... I'm thinking about we should start every day singing wedding songs to each other because we have these big, bold ideas at our weddings about what it's going to be like, right? We sing these songs. I got the first one I'm going to sing to her. Later this morning when she's here, I'm going to sing this to her. Tomorrow morning if you wake up and the sun does not appear, I I will be here. If in the dark we lose sight of love, hold my hand and have no fear, because I, I will be here. This is a song about a marriage that is thinking something true and noble and admirable and praiseworthy, which is an application of everyday grace. Parents, do these words describe you? I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. How does that work for moms and dads? How does everyday grace play out in our home? I'm guessing that if you're like everyone else, You have good days and bad days. You have days when maybe these qualities are present, and then you have days when they're not. As husbands and wives, as mothers, as fathers, as children, we have good days and bad days. I think there's a key to good days. And it goes something like this. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. We sang a song just a few moments ago about drawing nearer, 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 precious Lord. Paul, I think, gives a summary of the whole gospel, and I think it's tucked away in verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. Remember what it said? Four words. The Lord is near. Be near to God. This is how we experience grace. 
God comes close to us. When we don't deserve it, when we haven't earned it, when we haven't measured up, He comes close to us. He draws near. This is the key to abundant living. The Lord is near. This changes our lives. It transforms our homes. It renovates our marriages. It changes how we parent. The Lord is near. This is how we know God's grace. Because God doesn't just abandon us and leave us to our own desires. He comes near to us. And He continually comes near. Maybe you're thinking right about now that this description of abundant life sounds ridiculous in light of the way we live, because we live a lot of our days, don't we, with anxiety and fear, discontented, seeking more. Which set of words best describes how you spend your days? I'm going to give you two options. Joyful, peaceful, grateful, content, or anxious, frantic, striving, and frustrated. You've got some days to live. How do you live most of your days? Are most of them joyful, peaceful, content, or frantic, anxious, frustrated? How we spend our days is, of course, how we're going to spend our life. Paul says, no matter what our circumstances, the Lord is near. And that changes everything. It changes everything about how we live together as husbands and wives, how we parent, how we go to work, how we pop up out of bed in the morning. No matter what we've done, the Lord is near, and He promises never to leave us or forsake us. He forgives us for every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future. He walks with us through every storm and every trial. He loves us with an unconditional love, and He holds us in His hands no matter what. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. The Lord is near. And I find it fascinating that Paul actually wrote these words while he was in prison. He was awaiting a trial, possible execution. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. And Paul could sing this because he knew that the Lord was near. So how does this play out in our homes? Uh, I just wanted to try to be as kind of clear on some application as possible. So I was thinking about our homes, and it seems like this is one place where we experience scarcity directly related to time. I can't tell you how many people have been bugged by the clocks around here that don't run. (laughs) And I can't tell you how many times it's bothered me as I've been walking around here sometime throughout the week, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what time it is. I don't know if I'm late or early, or I don't know what to do. We are time-starved, many of us. And time frantic, many of us. Is there something we could do about that to live in abundance and more rejoice? If we recognize the Lord was near. Interesting idea somebody shared with me earlier this week. 
Do you realize that the very first thing that God created was time? Did you know that? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning. So before there even creation of light, he had to step into time because before this, the Lord was living in this timeless like eternity with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there was no time. He created time. And so if he could create time, doesn't that make him the Lord of time, the Lord of our time? One little practical thing that helps me, and this is kind of a Jewish mindset on time, and that is when does your day start? Uh, for the Jews, the day starts at sundown. So the first thing you do every day is you get ready for bed and then you go sleep. That's the f- so you spend the first half of your day sleeping. Now we in the West, are, we think our day starts when the alarm goes off. But if you adopt this mindset, as I've been trying to do it, uh, I wake up and I realize half the day is already over. And I haven't done anything. But God has already been working for half a day. And so can I join God in what He's doing? He's already probably stirred some things up. And can I just be aware of that? And so that with that comes this kind of sense of calling. Like today, what I have to do is not all the things I think I got to do. It's, it's what does God have for me? What has God started for me? And it creates a, le- a lot less frantic. For me, it creates a lot less days that just whiz by and I go, oh, what happened today? I don't know what happened today. Maybe you can think about that because it seems to me that if abundant living is worth anything, it should apply to something as practical as how we spend our time. How does this play out in marriages? Well, I've said last week quite a bit about the law means well and that it tries to give us some guidance for how we should live, but it backfires particularly well in marriages because we know what our spouse ought to do, but they're not doing it. And the law can't help them do it. So we feel like it's our role then to help our spouse do the things that they should do. Anybody else ever play that role? Yeah, so we're there to fix our spouse essentially. And when our spouse is not fixed, then we have some options. One option is just to give up on them, say forget it, and maybe even walk away. One option is to not care anymore and kind of become detached or not care that way, to have distance. But another option is this, is to do what marriage was actually designed to do. You know what marriage is best at? Marriage is best at giving us practice in forgiving. That's what marriage is designed for, to help us learn how to be really good forgivers. And I know this is true because I live with a person who is probably the world's best forgive her. Because I'm doing stuff all the time and I have to go to her and I have to say I'm sorry. And she's just reckless in forgiving me. And it makes me want to be a better forgiver. It makes, I, I tell her, you make me want to be a better man. Is that from a movie? Is there a song about that I could sing? <laughs> Marriage with grace says I take you exactly how you are, and I forgive you. I can imagine the you God wants to create, but until we get to that day when God completes his good work, until that day, we just keep practicing forgiveness. For me, this is a practical application of grace and the reality that the Lord is near. So maybe you can think about that. And then one thing about kind of parenting. How does this play out in parenting? 
I mentioned the book Grace in Practice last week by a guy named Paul Zoll, and I wanted to share just one example of grace in parenting in his book. And this, was, this one struck home with me. It has to do with, you know, when your kids grow older and they don't exactly turn out the way you hoped they would, and you realize you're power, powerless to fix them too, right? This is the way he writes about grace in parenting. You live in Trenton, and your child moved to Portland. The fact is he could not get far enough away from you. He would not put it this way himself, but you represent the law to him. He understood you as judge over his life. This broke your heart because you never meant to come across as accusatory, but you did. But there's still hope. Reconciliation is still possible. You fly out there. You do not grovel, but you apologize instead. You apologize, especially when he and the woman who he lives with have a child. You roll up your sleeves and you help them. You do not throw stones and you do not open old wounds, but you really help them. You help them right when your son needs you most. This is grace. Three years after that weekend, you receive a call. Mom and Dad, we want to move back to New Jersey. We want our little boy to know his grandparents. That is grace. Grace in parenting says, I'm going to do whatever I can to love you. And not that I'm not going to discipline you sometime fairly, but I'm always going to extend grace to you. Grace in parenting, grace in marriages, grace at home, sees the good that God wants to accomplish and believes that one day God will bring it to completion because that's what God does. That's what we believe about grace. Don't stop believing. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who applies it to our hearts. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.